You are listening to the audio podcast of Gethsemane Baptist Church, located in Long Beach, California, pastored by Eli Reynolds. Never explain or tell in this life, he is absolutely wonderful. You know, that's what, that's what the prophet said, his name shall be called Wonderful. And that's who he is. Well, it's certainly good to be here tonight. And uh, you have a good crowd for uh, an off-night service. You know, we're all creatures of habit, are we not? Uh, Some more than others, but we're all creatures of habit. Probably most of you are sitting in the same seat you always sit in. Uh, That's just, you know, that's the way we do it. That's the Baptist way. And, uh, but it messes up your schedule when services move from Wednesday to Thursday, and all of a sudden your whole life is discombobulated, and uh, uh, you don't know what day of the week it is or where you're supposed to be, and, uh, but I'm glad that you found your way to the house of God tonight. Thank you for being here, and uh, I'm delighted that you were willing to let me come back one more time. Uh, I enjoyed myself so immensely last year when I was here, and I have been anxiously awaiting this moment, this opportunity to come and be with you, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Uh, If so, it will be uh, a great night. Pastor Reynolds asked me to bring a few books when I came, so all I brought was what would fit in my carry-on bag. Uh, So I just jammed all my clothes in a corner and stuck some books in. So I only have a limited amount uh, tonight, but they're on the back table. I want to tell you about a couple of them. These are all books that I have written. The Lord has enabled me to do some writing. This little booklet is called The Tragedy of Bitterness. Probably in the church as a whole, we're suffering a pandemic, not of COVID or something else, but a pandemic of bitterness. Uh, There are more people that I have talked to who used to go to church or used to serve God or used to do something, and their problem is there is a root of bitterness that has sprung up that has turned them aside. And this little booklet is a biblical examination of this thing called bitterness. We look at the cause of bitterness. You say, I know why I'm bitter because they hurt me or they did me wrong or they hurt somebody I love. That's not what the Bible says is the cause of bitterness. It's something else. So we look at the cause of bitterness, and then we look at the consequences of bitterness. You know, bitterness is a very destructive thing. It will destroy you, and it will destroy those around you. But then the Bible has the cure. There is an answer. You don't have to go on in bitterness. And perhaps tonight you're struggling with this thing of bitterness. By the way, we all face it at some point in our life. Why? Because we all get hurt. People do us wrong. Is there anybody in here that nobody has ever said an unkind word to you? Nobody has ever hurt you? Nobody has ever treated you unfairly? If so, I'd like to talk with you after service. Because I'm going to be mean to you, and that way you won't feel like you've missed out on one of the experiences of life that everybody else has had. The truth of it is, we all face it at some point in time, but the Bible has the answer, and you don't have to live a life of bitterness, and maybe tonight that's you, or maybe you have a relative or a friend, uh, someone that you love, and you know that they're struggling with that. This little booklet is out there, and this little booklet is $3. Then this is my newest book. This is called A Story of Discovery. It is a verse-by-verse examination of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. 
It is a psalm that is made up of uh, 22 stanzas. Now, how would you like to open your hymn book and find a song with 22 stanzas? And the preacher say, we're going to stand and we're going to sing all 22 verses of our song this evening. Yeah, you haven't sung 22 verses since you've been here. Can you imagine all in one song? Israel's songbook, Psalm 119, 22 verses. And it's all about the same subject. It's all about the Word of God. And the psalmist is on a journey of discovery. He is discovering what happens, what the effect of the Word of God is on the life of an individual who will invest himself in the Word of God and allow the Word of God to work in their heart and life. He begins in stanza number one, verse number one. Blessed is the man. That word blessed means supremely happy, overflowing with joy. Here's what he discovers. The word of God is the highway to happiness. Do you want a happy life? Live a life in and according to the word of God. And you will have a happy life. Then he moves on to stanza number two. Verse number nine, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. And he discovers the word of God is also the highway to holiness. You want a holy life? Live a life in and according to the word of God and you will have a holy life. And so we go through every stanza of this wonderful psalm and look at each one of those stanzas and what the Word of God will do for your life. There's several other books back there. There's a story of grace. That's a verse-by-verse study of the book of Ruth. There's a story of mercy. That's a verse-by-verse study of the book of Jonah. Uh, There's a little booklet back there called Abraham's Tent. Have you ever realized, probably we all have heard someone preach about Abraham's altars. By the way, if you want something to study in your spare time, study this. Study the four patriarchs. You will find that Abraham built four altars, Isaac dug four wells, Jacob erected four pillars, and Joseph wore four garments. Now, I don't have time to deal with that tonight. That's another whole subject for another whole hour, another whole series. But I got to, I, I was, I, I've preached on Abraham's altars, but I had a fellow call me one day, a preacher friend of mine, and he said, Brother Bertram, I got a question for you. And I said, yes. He said, have you ever preached on Abraham's altars? I said, Brother, every preacher who has ever lived has preached on Abraham's altars. He said, well, have you ever preached on Abraham's tent? And I said, what? He said, have you ever preached on Abraham's tent? I said, no, I have not preached on Abraham's tent. Why? Why are you asking me this question? He said, well... You know, the Bible talks more about Abraham's tent than it does about his altars. I said, really? I'm interested. What do you have? He said, nothing. I said, well, why did you call me? He said, well, I thought if anybody had preached on it, you would have been the one who would have preached on it. I said, well, I've never even thought of it. Well, we hung up the phone, and and I couldn't get that thought out of my mind. I I, I thought, I don't even know if this guy knows what he's talking about. You know how preachers are. I mean, I'm not even sure he knows So I got my Bible out and I read the story of Abraham and I discovered surely enough the Bible has more verses that talk about Abraham's tent than it has verses that talk about Abraham's altar. And I got to thinking about that and I got to working on it and the Lord gave me several messages on Abraham's tent dealing with his home life. Let me just give you this little thought and then we'll get to the message tonight. What do you think Abraham's tent was made out of? Probably not polyester, probably not nylon. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't made by Ozark and sold at Walmart, you know. I I, I would assume 
that it was made out of animal skins, would you not? Well, would it be too much of the stretch of the imagination to wonder if perhaps some of those skins came from animals that Abraham had offered on his altars of sacrifice? If that be the case, Abraham lived every day under the shadow of someone who died so that he might live. Oh, is that not how we ought to live our life? Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. We ought to live every moment of every hour of every day realizing that we're under the shadow of him who loved us and gave himself for us. He died that we might live. So that little booklet is back there. All the books are $10 each. If you want to write a check tonight, make the check to North Valley Publications. I don't make any money off the books. I'm not in the book selling business. I'm not in the profit making business. I just write and I'm thankful that somebody wants to publish it and somebody wants to buy it and somebody wants to read it. And so that, that's reward enough for me. So if you make a check, make it to North Valley Publications. Uh, they'll take cash. I don't know. Maybe you can barter something. Uh, I'm going to sell everything that's there and then hold uh, Brother Reynolds accountable for all the money. And so I don't have anything to do with it. But if, if you want me to sign it, I'll sign it for you. I guess I can do that. If you want him to sign it for you, he'll sign it for you. And just sign Craig Bircham and that'll be fine. First Peter chapter 1 tonight. First Peter chapter 1. Thank you again for the invitation to be here. Thank you for coming on a Thursday night. I'm just thrilled. I love to study the Word of God and I love to preach the Word of God. I just got back from summer tour with our college, and uh, I preached 61 times in 73 days, traveled almost 16,000 miles, drove every mile of it, uh, and um, we were in, uh, I think, 60, 50-something uh, churches in 22 states, made it all the way to Charleston, South Carolina, and figured if we went any further east, we'd get wet. So we turned around and started back, uh, but we had a great time. I'm delighted to be here tonight. First Peter chapter 1, if you're physically able, I ask you to stand to your feet as we read our scripture text out of honor and reverence to the word of God this evening. First Peter chapter 1, verse number 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come before you tonight. We thank you again for your blessings upon us. Thank you for the privilege to hold in our hands a copy of the Word of God. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives within us, that gives us illumination and opens our understanding that we might understand the scriptures. Thank you for this place that we can assemble together in fellowship and worship you. And now, Lord, as we look to your word, we pray that you would help us. Pray that you would give me clarity of thought and speech. I pray that you would help us to have attentive ears and receptive hearts to the word of God tonight. May your perfect will be accomplished in every life. We'll thank you and praise you for all that you do. For we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we open our Bibles this evening, we come to Peter's first epistle for our text. Now, if you know anything about the background of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to people who are enduring severe persecution. 
These Christians are living under the administration of the, the emperor, the Roman emperor Nero. One of the most vile, one of the most wicked, one of the most cruel, one of the most anti-Christian individuals who has ever reigned over a nation. And uh, these people are not just having a door slammed in their face or having someone speak an unkind word. They are literally having to lay down their life for the sake of the gospel. They are enduring severe persecution. And in the five chapters which comprise this book, some 15 different times, Peter will refer to this subject of suffering. But it's interesting to note that as Peter writes to suffering people, repeatedly he reminds them of the truth of salvation. That's what we read tonight in our reading. We didn't read anything about suffering. We read about the truth of salvation. You see, suffering people usually want to talk about their suffering. I mean, if, if I've got an ache or a pain, if you'll come and talk to me, I'll tell you about my aches and pains. If I'm having a difficult time with something, if you want to talk to me, I'll talk about my difficult time that I'm going through. You know, you know why we do that? <clears throat> because when we're suffering, when we're hurting, that begins to be the thing that consumes our thoughts. It consumes our mind. It takes up our life. We go to bed with it. We wake up with it. It's there through the night when we wake up. We go through the day and we deal with it or it's in the back of our mind. We know that we're going to have to face it. We know that we're going to have to deal with this situation. And so it consumes us if we're not careful. But Peter wants to remind us that even in suffering, our focus must remain on Christ. Our thoughts should always be centered and focused upon him, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. And when we talk about salvation, the most commonly used word is the word saved. And that's a good word, that's a Bible word, but that single word is not big enough by itself to tell us all that happened when we were saved. Just like it took many Old Testament sacrifices to portray the work of Calvary, so it takes a lot of words to describe this thing we call salvation. Uh, in, in fact, if we wanted to take our time, we could go through and we'd find that there are words pulled from all arenas of life that apply to salvation. For example, we use the word redemption. The word redemption is a marketplace term. And it has to do with moving from bondage to freedom. Something has been redeemed. A price has been paid. We use the word regeneration. Well, while redemption is a marketplace term, regeneration is a biological term. It has to do with passing from death unto life. We could talk about justification. Justification is a legal term. And it has to do with moving from condemnation to innocence. We could talk about the word propitiation. The word propitiation is a sacrificial term. And it has to do with being changed from being under wrath to being at a state of appeasement by way of a sacrifice. We could talk about the word reconciliation. Reconciliation is a diplomatic term. And it talks about moving from enmity to friendship. And we could go on and on and talk about all of these different terms coming from different arenas of life that all have an application or speak of an aspect of salvation. 
Just as you cannot describe God with one attribute, so you cannot define salvation with just one term. And in our scripture text, Peter uses that word redeemed in verse number 18. And as great as the work of creation was, the work of redemption was a far greater work. It cost God more to redeem us than it did to make us. Creation, we could say it this way, creation was the work of his finger, but redemption was the work of his arm. And in this passage, by way of introduction, we note that there is a people to free. That word redeemed is used there. You are not redeemed with corruptible things. Redemption implies bondage or slavery. Uh, We're redeemed from what? He tells us in that verse, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. That word conversation has to do with manner of living. Uh, The word vain means empty or chasing the smoke or trying to catch the wind. And that's the way life apart from Christ is. It's It's an exercise in vanity. People run to and fro looking for something to satisfy them. And nothing satisfies because satisfaction is found only in Christ and Christ alone. And we lived an empty life living for things that could never satisfy. So there's a people to free, we were redeemed. But there was a payment to furnish. You're redeemed with, uh, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You see, silver and gold could never pay for our redemption because you cannot redeem something eternal with that which is temporal. There must be an eternal payment. The payment must be equivalent or equal or superior to that which is being paid for. And we have life. Our soul will never die. We'll either spend eternity in heaven or we'll spend eternity in hell. And so there had to be something eternal to redeem us. And that was the precious blood of Christ. It was precious to the Father because it was the blood of his Son. It was precious to the Son because it was the blood of his life. And it's precious to the believer because it was the price that was furnished for our redemption. There's a people to free, a payment to furnish, and there's a plan to fulfill. Look at verse number 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. You realize that Calvary was not an afterthought. Calvary was not plan B. It wasn't that man sinned in the Garden of Eden and all of a sudden God up in heaven began to wring his hands and say, oh my, what shall be done? How am I going to fix this? What am I going to do? No, it was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world. Before sin was in the heart of man, salvation was in the plan of God. Before guilt was ever experienced, grace was already laid out. And God already knew what would happen. And based on God's foreknowledge, God already had a plan to take care of man and his sinful state. And in the mind of God, Christ was always the answer to supply the need of redemption for mankind. Now that's the truth of salvation. But I want you to notice how Peter applies this to our present everyday life. Notice what he says. He tells us not only about salvation But he also tells us something about the God of salvation. Look now down at verse number 21. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. That your faith and hope might be in God. 
Now, if you look at your Bible very carefully, you'll find that I did not even read an entire sentence in our scripture reading tonight. Because the sentence actually begins in verse number 17. Verse number 17, Peter concludes that verse with a colon. Verse number 18 concludes with a semicolon. Verse number 19 with another colon. Verse number 20 with a comma. And finally at the end of verse number 21, you see a period. Now all of you students, how would you like to diagram that sentence? I mean, I'd do good to diagram C-spot run. But I can't imagine diagramming that sentence. Now, Peter is writing a sentence And he's writing this sentence telling us about salvation, telling us about the work of salvation, how we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, how God did all of this for us. It was planned in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. And he says, now here is the sum of it, that your faith and hope might be in God. You see, there is no problem or situation in life that you may encounter that God will not pull you through. Doubt may come, discouragement may come, disappointment may appear. You may be disappointed in yourself or disappointed in others. Despair, depression, whatever it is, you can put your faith and hope in God. It may be hard to trust. You may not see what God is doing, but you can still place your faith and hope in God. Peter reminds these suffering Christians that God has redeemed them and that is why they can put their faith and hope in him. And God has redeemed you tonight and you can put your faith and hope in God. In this text tonight, in the next few minutes, I want to show you three reasons that are given why you can put your faith and hope in God. Now this is no great profound theological discourse. I'm not digging into the deeper things I'm just getting simple, basic truth. But the simple, basic truth of the Word of God is so deep and so strong that it will sustain you in the midst of the most difficult trial that you will ever come across this side of eternity. Let me give you these reasons. Number one, you can put your faith and hope in God because God knows. You ever been somewhere and you were in a strange city, a strange area, and you were, you were maybe with some other people and you didn't know anything about that area, and they said this, they said, let's go such and such place and eat. Or let's go over to this place, and you're like, I have no idea where that's at. And they said this, just follow me. You didn't have to punch it into the GPS. You didn't have to bring up the Google Maps or whatever it is on your phone. You didn't have to do any of that. You just simply got in your vehicle and you followed them. When they made a left-hand turn, you made a left-hand turn. When they made a right-hand turn, you made a right-hand turn. When they went straight, you went straight. You did not have to know where you were going. You don't have to know the way. You don't have to know the turns. As long as you are confident that the person you're following knows, all you have to do is follow. And I want you to notice that God already has a plan And as long as you're confident that God knows about tomorrow, you don't have to worry. You say, well, how do I know that God knows about tomorrow? Look at verse number 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. 
The word foreordain means to make a decision based upon foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is to know before. You and I have no foreknowledge. We don't know anything before it happens. We only know it after the fact. But God not only knows it after the fact, but God knows it before it becomes a fact. And that's a fact. God has foreknowledge. God knows the future before it becomes the present. God knows tomorrow before it becomes today. God knows all that has happened in eternity past. God knows all that is happening right now. And God knows all that will happen in eternity future. That's the God we serve. He knows. But I can tell you one better than that. God not only knows what will happen, God knows what could happen if other things were to happen. You see, God not only knows what will actually happen, but God knows what could potentially happen. Now, that's big knowledge. We left the airport today coming over here to the church, and I'm not sure where we went. I just know I got in the vehicle, and I just settled back for the ride. We went left, and we went right, and we went this way and went that way and ran through a few yellow lights, and I thought we were going through a red light, but we didn't, so the preacher's in good standing tonight, and, uh, and we got here. Now, I don't know which way we came, but I'm sure that's not the only way from the airport here. I'm sure there are other ways. Now, I don't know if we'd gone a different way. I don't know what would have happened. I don't know if we'd have had an accident. I don't know if we'd have got stuck in traffic. I don't know if, you know, if we'd have found a lottery ticket that was a winner that blew up against the windshield and been rich. I don't know what would have happened. But God knows what, and by the way, I'll never know what happened because we didn't go that way. But God knows what would have happened had we gone that way. That's how great the knowledge of God is. God not only knows what has happened, what is happening, what will happen, but God knows what could potentially happen if other things were to happen. God knows. God knew that sin would enter into the world through Adam's disobedience. God didn't cause it. God didn't ordain it. We're not Calvinists. But God knew the choice that Adam and Eve would make. And God knew the consequences that would come. And God allows the consequences of sin to be played out in the world. And knowing that before it happened, God planned a course of action to deal with that problem. In fact, Revelation chapter 13 and verse number 8 says that Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You say, oh, I found a mistake in the Bible. It's, that's not so because Christ was only slain roughly 2,000 years ago. And that wasn't before the foundation of the world. Oh, but in the mind of God, because of God's foreknowledge, when God, before God founded the world, it was so certain in the mind of God that Christ would die on a hill called Calvary that in the mind of God it was as good as already done. That's God's foreknowledge. God knows. If the fall of man did not take God by surprise, then your problem and my problem will not take him by surprise. And just as God had a plan for the problem of sin, so God has a plan for us. You see, our problem is we are captives of the moment. You realize that you can only live this moment. You can't go back in the past. You can't go ahead. We can't go back and say, you know, the service started off really well, and I really like that special. I want to go back and rewind it and have that special again. We can't go back. 
You can't say, well, you know, the preacher's boring. I wish we could hurry up and get to the end and let's go forward. You can't do that. You can only live in the moment. We are captives of the moment. We can remember the past. We can plan for the future, but we can only live in the moment. But God transcends time. God lives outside of time in a place called eternity. And to God, tomorrow is the same as today for him. He doesn't need to wait for it to get here to see what he's going to do. He's already there doing what he wants to do. It's not just that God sees it, but God is already there waiting for you and I to get there. I may not know what tomorrow holds, but God is already in my tomorrow making preparations for me. A songwriter said this, he's already in my tomorrow, he's walking one step ahead, whether in joy or in sorrow, he'll do just what he said. He'll never leave you lonely in the land of the great unknown. He's already in your tomorrow, so just keep pressing on. See, because God knows, I can put my faith and trust him. I don't know, but God knows. And I can put my faith and hope in him. But you know, it's not just that God knows is why we can put our faith and hope in him. Because the second point is really something that the first point is contingent upon. You say, what's point number two? Point number one, God knows. But notice in verse number 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, God knows but was manifested these last times for you. You see, it's comforting to know that God knows, but only if you can add to it point number two, God cares. You can put your faith and hope in God because God not only knows, but God cares. You say, how do you know that? I don't see that in that passage. Well, did you notice those last two words in verse number 20? For you. Generally, when you do something of your own free will for someone, it means you care. Now, you can buy your wife flowers because you think it will help you get out of the doghouse a little quicker. That's an ulterior motive. That's a, that's a plan. That's a scheme you're working. Or you could just out of the free goodwill of your heart because you love your wife and you care for her, you could buy her flowers and have them sent to her. You see, when you do something just out of your own free will, just of your own accord, maybe somebody is sick and you take a meal by the house because you care for them. Somebody's having a rough time. Maybe they're out of work and, and you've got a little extra and you slip them a $100 bill or something. You know what that means? That means I care for you. I'm concerned about you. Could I just say sometime, go through the Bible and look at all the times the Bible says that God did something for you or God did something for us, it will amaze you how much God's love, God's compassion, God's care is manifested in those little phrases. You realize that Bethlehem was for you? You realize that Nazareth was for you? You realize that Calvary was for you? You realize that the empty tomb was for you? God did it for you because God cares. What if tonight I had foreknowledge and I knew that your house was going to catch on fire? 
I knew that the flames were going to come sweeping through. It was going to destroy your house and everybody and everything that was in it. If I care, I can forewarn you. I can say, you know, let's have the fire department standing by. Let's go. Let's get all the valuable things out of your house. Let's make sure nobody is in there. Let's make sure everybody's at a safe distance. But I only do that if I care. You see, though I know if I don't care, what if I just said, well, it's not my house. It's not my stuff. What kind of person would I be? And could I just say, if God knows but God doesn't care, what kind of God would God be? Oh, but I want to tell you, God not only knows, but God cares. God cared so much for us that he wanted to make a way whereby we could be saved. Look over just one page in your Bible to chapter 2 of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 24. Here's a wonderful verse. Notice what it says. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. You see, in this verse we discover the doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ. Now, I know that among theologians today, I know there's great debate and people argue against this doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ. But could I just say this? There's no argument about it in the Bible. The Bible just states it as a plain fact. In fact, if Christ did not bear the penalty for my sin, then I must bear the penalty for my sin. If Christ is not my substitute, then I still occupy the place of a condemned sinner. So apart from the substitutionary death of Christ, I have absolutely no hope of heaven. There's a man famous in history. When I call his name, you'll recognize him. He was a Frenchman. His name was Napoleon. Napoleon set out to conquer the European continent. And because of his endeavors to conquer the nations of Europe, the peoples of Europe, he had to have a, a, a continual supply of men to fill the ranks in his armies. As far as I can tell, Napoleon was one of the earliest uh, individuals. France was one of the earliest nations to enact what we call a conscription or a draft. In other words, uh, at one point in time, if you were not registered for the conscription as a man, you could not be a citizen in France. Uh, your citizenship was incumbent on you being registered for the conscription or the draft. And so what Napoleon would do is he would have every man register and they would draw names, they would draw individuals out and those individuals would be summoned to come and serve for a certain period of time in the armies of Napoleon. Now, when your name was drawn, officials from the government came to your house and notified you that your name was drawn and told you at the time that you were appointed to come and to serve, and there was no exemption. You had to serve. There was no excuse allowed. There was no reason allowed. You could not buy your way out or pay your way out. You had to serve. The only thing that could happen is if someone was willing to serve in your place, they could do that. And so the story is told of a man who they came to his house, his name was drawn, they came to his house and uh, they said to him, sir, your name has been drawn, it's time for you to call, be called up in a few weeks, you have, to assign, you have to report at the assigned place to serve in the armies, uh, the grand army of Napoleon. And the man said, I cannot serve. They said, what do you mean you cannot serve? There are no exemptions, there are no exceptions. He said, I cannot serve. They said, what is your reason why you cannot serve? He said, because I'm dead. 
Now, they'd heard a lot of excuses, but they never heard that one before. They said, what do you mean you're dead? You're talking to us. He said, oh, no, I'm dead. They said, what do you mean? He said, well, several years ago, my name was drawn in the conscription. They came to my house and told me that I was supposed to appoint. I began to set things in order. I began to arrange my affairs. I had a wife. I had a young daughter. I began to make preparations for them. And, and uh, the night before I was supposed to report, a friend of mine came to my house and he said to me, now we're the same age, but he said, you're married and you have a daughter. I'm still single. I want to go serve in your place. I don't want you to leave your wife. I don't want you to leave your daughter. Let me go serve in your name. And he went and he served in my name and he was killed in battle and I've already been killed I can't go serve again they didn't know what to do they appealed it to their, their officers over them those officers did not know what to do ultimately it went all the way to Napoleon himself they told Napoleon the story the man said he cannot serve because I've already died Napoleon said this he said he is absolutely right he cannot be compelled to serve he cannot die twice Oh, could I say 2,000 years ago, there was one who came from the portals of glory, stepped and took my place on a cross of Calvary, and I, he died for me. And because he died for me, I can't die twice. He died in my name. He took my place. And I am free because Christ died for me. I don't have to die for my sin because somebody already died in my place. And because he died, I know that he cares for me. Look again at verse number 24. I'm, I'm trying to hurry. I've got one more point. I'm just going to mention it, and we'll be done. Look at verse number 24 again. It said, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. When a portion of a statement could be removed... And the statement would still be grammatically and factually correct. Then that portion of the statement is there for only one purpose. It is there for emphasis. Now we could read verse number 24. Who bear our sins in his own body on the tree? And that would be grammatically correct and that would be factually correct. But the Bible says who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That is the emphasis on the, the fact that he did it himself. He did it by himself. He did it of himself. The writer of Hebrews said, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He did it himself. Why? Because he cares for you and he loves you. And he was willing to die in your place and in my place. All of the sin of mankind was placed on him and God judged him as if he had done it all. I can't fully grasp it. I could teach a theology class on it, but still I can't wrap my mind around it. All I know is that he drank the bitter cup for me. He became a curse for me. He was separated from the Father for me. He took the wrath that I deserved. God saw me in my sin and God not only said I know, but God said I care. If God cared enough to meet your greatest need, don't you think he cares enough to meet your lesser needs? And your faith and hope can be in God. Let me give you the third reason and we'll finish. Your faith and hope can be in God because God knows. Your faith and hope can be in God because God cares. Here's a third truth that Peter gives us. 
Verse number 21. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. Here's the third reason. Not only God knows and God cares, but God can. You see, I don't see that. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead. You know anybody else who can do that? Do you know anybody else in the human or the supernatural realm that can give life or bring back someone from the dead? There is only one who can form a body out of clay and breathe into his nostrils and that clay become a living being. There is only one who can walk into a cemetery and speak to a man who's been in the grave for four days and that man get up and walk out. There's only one who could raise his begotten from the grave. Do you know why you can put your faith and trust in God? Because God can. You say God can what? Whatever. I mean, if he can raise the dead, if he can do that, he can do whatever needs to be done. I mean, if death is powerless to stop him, he can take care of your problem and he can take care of my problem as well. He can meet your need. He can take care of you. There's a style of argument in logic called the greater to the lesser. If you know that the greater is true, then by default you have to accept that the lesser is true as well. And if God can do the greater, that is providing a way whereby we could be redeemed from a hopeless eternity, then God can certainly do the lesser as to whatever we need in our life. In fact, that's exactly what Paul said. Romans 8, 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Can I say tonight, I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what valley you're walking through or what mountain you have to climb. I don't know the broken heart that you may have. I don't know the tears that may soak your pillow tonight. Can I tell you, your faith and hope can be in God because God knows. You may come to God and talk to him about your problem, but you will never inform him about your problem. You will never come and say, God, this is going on in my life. You say, oh, wow, I wasn't aware of that. I didn't know that. Let me see what I can do. Because he already knew it before you knew it. God knows. God not only knows, God cares. You say, how do you know he cares? Look at Calvary. Calvary tells you that he cares. But it's even better because God not just knows and God not just cares, but God can. I don't know what your burden is, but God can give the answer. God can deliver. We have a whole book filled with miraculous things that were done by the finger of God. God has not changed. The same God who did it then can do it today. And your faith and hope can be in God because God knows, God cares, and God can. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, our Heavenly Father, what a God we serve. Lord, my heart is just full tonight. 
as I'm reminded of the simple truth that God knows. I'm glad that you know more than I know. I'm just reactionary. I have to respond when something happens. God, you're not reactionary.